0: If you're visiting
1: with us or didn't get a copy of your notes as you came in, please put your hand up. Someone will bring you some notes. There's a story that's told of a lady getting towards the end of her life,
0: sitting and chatting with a friend, and she said, I've had a very well organized life. And her friend said, Why what what do you mean? How did you have a well organized wife? Well, she's life. She said, I've had four husbands. The first
1: one was a millionaire. The second one was an actor. The third one was a preacher. And the fourth one was a funeral director.
0: And her friend said, Well, what does that mean about how is that well organized? She said, Well,
1: one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. Thank you for giggling. A well-organized life. In our story this morning, we're going to meet, well, we're going to hear a story about a woman who had seven husbands. Or so the story goes.
0: We've been following Jesus as he works and walking our way through, working our way through the Gospel of Mark with this repeated refrain of Jesus proclaiming the coming kingdom of God. Let's read together as we do each week. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is proclaiming a kingdom, something that is beginning with his proclamation and will grow and grow and expand as he goes through uh, his ministry and something which for us is still here but not quite. It's a kingdom that's coming, always coming closer and closer until one day it will reach ultimate fulfilment when we open our eyes and see Jesus face to face in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus also tells us what kind of kingdom it is. In Mark 10, 45, the words of Jesus. Let's read together. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has come to give his life, to serve others, Let's set us an example. He's come to give his life as a ransom for many. And the only reason that makes sense to give your life as a ransom for many is if there's something else to come afterwards. If all we are is slightly clever monkeys who only have one life to live here on this earth, then there is absolutely no reason at all to be noble and self-sacrificing, to serve others, to do good, to give up yourself for the advantage of another. If all we are is slightly elevated monkeys, then this is the only life there is. And why are we wasting it in church on a Sunday morning when we could be at the beach? Why waste it working hard for our
1: families when we could just be keeping it all for ourselves? If this is all there is to life, well, then it's a fairly pointless endeavor altogether. But Jesus says there's more to life.
0: Than this, He says we are more than just slightly educated monkeys. And he says that this life isn't the end. There is more to it than what we see around us today. Jesus in his, uh, is coming in this time in the Gospel of Mark. He's come into the temple. He's cleaned out the merchants who are buying and selling in the temple. We've had the triumphal entry and all those things. And he's been coming back each day into the temple. And, and his group are now controlling the temple for these few days. He's not letting anyone carry the products through and all the rest of it. He's putting the temple back to its main purpose. And this is, of course, upsetting the religious leaders. And so they've been coming to him and challenging him and asking him questions about what authority he has to do these things. And last week we heard the story of coming and trying to trap him with the story of the taxes. Benjamin Franklin reminds us that there's only one, two things that are sure in this life, death and Taxes. We talked about taxes last week. This week we're talking about death. The Sadducees come, another one of these great religious parties uh, controlling Jerusalem at this time, one of the big important groups, and they come to Jesus with their, their essential question, the question they want to know. Trying to divide Jesus' followers, trying to get Jesus to slip up and say the wrong thing. By coming to him with a logical puzzle, so the Sadducees come. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. The Sadducees are a political group. They're one of the big three groups that run the run the country at this time. There's the Herodians who think the king is okay and we need to keep cooperate with him and the priest, uh, cooperate with him and Caesar. There's the Pharisees who want independence from Rome, who want to set up their own kingdom, who want to go out in their own way. And in the middle are these Sadducees, the group who run the, run the temple. The high priests are almost always Sadducees of this political group. They control the rituals. They control the sacrifices. They control the prayers and who's in charge of what happens at each year at the festivals. Mark tells us a simple summary of him because Mark is writing to non-Jewish people, so he gives a very simple summary of what they, what they believe. He says they don't believe in life after death. They don't believe in the resurrection. And so we say that's why they were so sad, you see. So sad, you see. That's what reminds us of what they believe. They're so sad. They don't believe in life after death. And so we have this political group who are liturgical, who are running the temple, they believe in bells and whistles and smokes and prayers and the whole thing, and they don't believe in life after death. And our modern evangelical minds go, aha, they're liberals. Those blasted, dratted liberals, they get into everything, don't they? And perhaps we think of them as you can think of churches or different groups that are very religious, have very structured beliefs and have very liturgical worship but don't really
1: believe the things they say they're going to believe in. Perhaps you can think of groups like that. But no, not at all.
0: The Sadducees are not liberals the way we think about liberals. Our modern categories do not extend backwards in time. Actually, the Sadducees are the most conservative of all the Jewish religious groups. They are fundamentalists. They absolutely believe the Bible is true. But... They only believe the Bible consists of the first five books of the Bible. What we believe is the Bible today, what the Old Testament is, is what the Jews had at those days. The Sadducees said only the first five books are true. What we call the Torah, the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's it. That's what they believed in, those first five books, and they believed it adamantly. They were absolutely sure that these first five books, they didn't say it was the first five books, they said these five books are all that God wants us to know. And holding firmly to those first five books of the Bible, they said there is nothing in here about life after death, therefore it doesn't exist. The first five books of the Bible tell a story of creation, of Noah, the fall and then Noah and the Tower of Babel and then Abraham comes along and has his adventures and Abraham's descendants, which tells us who the people are and where they've come from. The book of Exodus, the people are rescued from slavery in Egypt. The Ten Commandments are given. The book of Leviticus, the whole rules of how the nation is to be governed and the sacrifices, how it's all the work. The book of Numbers is a whole bunch of numbers about the people and who they were and where they came from. And then Deuteronomy sums the whole thing up again gives us the law again. And the Sadducees were convinced that these five books were it. God hasn't spoken in other places. They probably read the rest of what we call the Old Testament, but they didn't regard it as canon. It's not part of our rule. So they would have read the wisdom literature and they might have sung some of the Psalms and they might have read some of the prophecies and the different prophets, but they didn't believe it was of God. It was useful history or useful information, which is what puts the Sadducees in direct opposition with the Pharisees because the Pharisees are convinced that the whole of what we call the Old Testament is of God, therefore there is a resurrection from the dead.
1: The Sadducees reject that outright. And so they decide to test Jesus. Where does
0: he come down on this line? Will he agree with them that this whole idea of life after death is
1: simply absurd or will he side with the Pharisees? And so they put this question to Jesus. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a
0: man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And that's true. That's in the Scriptures. In Deuteronomy uh You've got your references there. Deuteronomy chapter 25. The question is, why did God make this rule? Why is this Moses' rule in the Old Testament? Why should I have to marry my brother's widow and raise up heirs for him? That seems a very strange thing, and thank goodness my brother hasn't died childless, and so I won't have to do it. What's this about? Why is this in there? Well, before we get into the next bit of the story, we'll just quickly run through why. Basically... In the Old Testament, in those first five books of the Bible, there's this idea of the jubilee. You heard of the jubilee? What does jubilee mean? You have a jubilee. The queen had her, her jubilee. That's 50 years. That's what it means, 50 years. In the Old Testament, the idea was that every 50 years, everything went back the way it used to be. So Every family got their property back. The farm that you inherited from your grandfather You could sell it and give it away or do whatever you wanted, knowing that in 50 years' time it will come back to your family. This is very important for the Jewish people and how they were working. So when they come out of Egypt as slaves, they come into the land, they conquer the land, they split it all up between the different tribes, the different clans, the different families, and this patch of dirt is yours and your descendants from now until the end of time. That's how the Jewish idea works worked. It was an economic model and really we should give it a go. Every 50 years all debts are cancelled. All debts are cancelled. All slaves are set free in the 50th year. Actually all Jewish slaves are set free every seven years but at the Jubilee all the foreign slaves are set free as well and sent back to their homeland. This is a beautiful uh, idea, a beautiful picture. We should try it today. Every 50 years we take Bill Gates' estate split it up between the people of the earth and start again. Who's on board? Who thinks that's a great idea? Except that, of course, we are Australians among the richest people in the world and so we may end up poorer. That's fine. It's an interesting idea. No need for communism, no need for capitalism. Just every 50 years, set it back to zero and start again. I wonder if we could convince any political parties to come on board with that. So they have this economic model built into their Mosaic law that every 50 years everything's going to go back. And so it's very, very, very important that every man has a descendant because otherwise their patch of dirt, their farm, could end up going somewhere else, could end up going elsewhere, could end up going to another tribe, to another clan, another family. And so it was very important that people had heirs to pass it down so that every 50 years when things were reset, they could say, well, whose land is this? Let's give it to the right family. And so they had these rules in there. And if you read through Deuteronomy chapter 25, the man doesn't have to marry his brother's widow. Uh, In fact, it says that he can refuse... But if he does that, the woman has to, gets to take him to the front gate of the city and slap him on the face and take off his sandal and
1: spit in his face. And if he's willing to put up with that, he doesn't have to marry the woman. Depending on the woman, it might be worth it. This idea of the jubilee puts everything back to where it is. So that's why
0: there's this commandment in Moses and why we don't have to worry about it anymore because we don't have that system. We don't have to set everything back the way it was 50 years ago. Inheritance is very important in this system. Men have to have this child so that they can... And there's a story in the Old Testament of a family where the man had no sons. He only had daughters. And he said to Moses, well, what am I going to do? And God said, Moses said, well, in your case, we'll make an exception. Your daughters will inherit the land and split it and pass it on to the grandchildren. So, you know, good for women's lib. Even Moses was on board with that in certain situations. They come to Jesus and they try to trap him with this story. So hypothetically, they come. In Matthew's Gospel, they say, there was someone amongst us who had, but probably didn't actually exist. It's a person they've made up. So in light of this situation, they come to Jesus and say, now look, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. Moses says, so the second one married the widow, but he also died leaving their child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. So at the resurrection, this so-called resurrection, you can see them rolling their eyes and saying, as if there even is such a thing. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. They've set up this logical trap for Jesus, this very, very clever riddle for him. Whose wife will she be in this so-called resurrection? If the
1: resurrection's possible, then who does she belong to? Whose wife is she? People still do this today. They come up with logical traps. This is the classic one. Can God make a
0: stone so big that God can't move it? Who says yes?
1: Who says no? Who says, that's a really tricky one and I can't answer it? Can God make a stone so big that God, God can do all
0: things, we say. So these clever people come to their logical traps. Well, if he's so big, if
1: he's so powerful, can he make a stone so big that he can't move it? If we say yes, if we say no, this is not
0: just things that apply to God as well. There are other logical traps. So for instance, there's the logical trap of the barber. The barber is one who shaves all those and only those who do not shave themselves. The question is, does the barber shave himself? If he shaves himself, then he's not a barber. If he doesn't shave himself, well, then who shaves him? And it's just a way that our logical Western brains put some words together and we come up with a paradox, an unsolvable question. The problem isn't, Question. The problem is the way the question has been constructed. And so these very clever Sadducees come and they think we've got a very clever logical trap for Jesus. We'll get him to see that, of course, it's absurd that in the resurrection one woman would have seven wives. You can't do that. One man can't have seven wives. No, the other way around. Seven men can't have one wife. It's perfectly fine in the Old Testament for one man to have seven
1: wives, but the idea for one, seven men to have one wife, ha, that could never happen. So they think they've got Jesus trapped. Therefore, ipso facto, QED, there is no resurrection. If it is impossible
0: for seven men to have one wife, then it is impossible that there should be life
1: after death. They think they are so clever. Jesus just says, you are wrong. Verse 24, Jesus replied, Are you not in error? Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God.
0: The source of their error is that they don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. They put God into this tiny little box and think, Well, if He doesn't fit into our tiny little box, then He doesn't exist. There is no life after death. We'll talk about them in two separate ways. First of all, the power of God Jesus explains to them that their picture of what the resurrection is, is wrong. He says, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Jesus' point is that the resurrection will be very different to this world. It's not just going to be this world 2.0, where we just live a bit longer and are a bit healthier and things just carry on as if nothing had changed. No, he says, this is going to be a completely different kind of world where people are not married and
1: given in marriage. And beyond that, it's beyond our understanding and imagination. Their God is too small. They do not believe that their God would ever do away with marriage, let alone that in a future world women would not be considered as property of men. In this new world that's coming, there won't be men and women. We're like
0: the children of God. And Luke, in him telling this story, when Luke tells this story, he adds in a few extra little ideas. So in Luke chapter 20, Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer
1: die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children. They are children of the resurrection.
0: And so Luke paints a bigger picture. Had Jesus' words in Luke paint a bigger picture of this
1: resurrection, these people will no longer be just human beings, but will be the children of God, children of the resurrection. The power of God, Jesus says, you don't know the power of God because the resurrection will be completely different to this world. The things that we assume as normal in this world do not necessarily apply in the next world. He says, You're in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And so he
0: points them to the scriptures. In the scriptures he says, now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses? Ah, book of Moses. They have read the book of Moses. They only believe in those five books of Moses. In the account of the burning bush, of course they've read that one. That's the most famous story of them all. Moses out in the wilderness by himself and God appears in the burning bush and speaks to him. Take off your sandals, the place you're standing is holy ground. And Moses and God have a conversation backwards and forwards. And so Jesus is pointing the story that they know so well and then says, haven't you ever read it? God says to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. These three great heroes of the Jewish faith, of the Jewish family, have been dead for hundreds of years at this point when God is speaking to Moses. And yet God says, I am the God of Abraham. Not I was the God of Abraham of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I am the God
1: of these men. And Jesus uses this to point out. He points them to the Torah. These are the books of the Bible
0: that they actually believe in. These first five books are the ones they take seriously. And so Jesus points to their own scriptures and says, even here in the scriptures that you hold
1: so dearly is this idea of life after death. He uses their scriptures to argue with them. To point out where they're wrong. Perhaps we should do that when the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on our door. you have a copy of the New World Testament handy?
0: Next time the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door, ask for a copy of their scriptures. And then turn to John chapter 1 and verse 3. That one matches exactly with our one and there's some great points in that about who Jesus is. They've changed other bits of the scriptures.
1: Don't bother arguing with them about the bits they've changed. Argue with them about the bits that match with ours. Jesus sums up what he has said by saying, Our God, He is not the God of the dead but of the living. You are
0: badly mistaken pointing to the power of God and pointing to their scriptures, he makes this argument and says, our God is the God of the living, not of the dead. And at this point, everybody in this room should be saying, but hold on a second, Jesus, that doesn't quite make sense. Are you saying that? No, perhaps I'm assuming too much. Those of us who are theologically trained, those of us who've been to college, those of us who've read the great books of history and read the the confessions of Augustine are saying, well, hang on a minute, Jesus, that doesn't make sense. That argument doesn't quite work because God exists outside of time. You all know that, don't you? You know that God created everything. He created time. Therefore, he's outside of time and therefore When God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God is really saying something about himself, not about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's pointing to his own eternality, the fact that he's outside of time. Saint Augustine, a Jewish, uh, not Jewish, a Roman, a Roman man who lived in Carthage, so he's technically an African, but kind of Spanish, and it gets confusing. We won't worry about that. He's a lawyer. Let's start there. Augustine, the great brain of his generation, wrote this stuff in his book of Confessions. And he has whole chapters about the fact that God exists outside of time. This, by the way, is probably, if you're happy with God, Jesus saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that proves it, then you don't need to listen to this bit. But for those of us who love the tricky bits of Scripture, this is is the stuff I love to talk about. God exists outside of time. I'm coming over here now, cameraman. God exists outside of time, Augustine says, uh, in the same way that I exist outside of this whiteboard. Yes, I exist outside of this piece of paper, in the same way God stands outside the universe, outside of time. The universe begins here and ends there, and God sees the whole thing from beginning to end. Do you agree that that's that's right? That's what Augustine said. Where did he get that idea from? Is that in the Bible somewhere? No, it's from Greek philosophy. A bunch of Greeks got together and they had arguments about what the perfect triangle would
1: look like. What does the perfect triangle look like? Got three angles, straight lines, three three what, sorry? All right, well, good. They're talking about perfect triangles, the idea of a triangle in
0: general, perfect triangle. Three sides, three angles, straight lines and exists outside of time, is what the Greek philosophers added in. They added that in because they wanted us to say that the triangle won't change over time. The triangle doesn't change. It always has three angles and three straight lines, and it always adds to 180 degrees, and it does not change. That's what makes it a perfect triangle. Are you with me so far? Well, if God is perfect, the reasoning goes, then he must be outside of time. He must not change. And there are bits in the Bible that point to this where God says, I am the Lord and I do not change. Yes, there's one place in the Old Testament that says that and one place in the New Testament that quotes that Old Testament place.
1: That's not what he's talking about. God isn't saying, I am outside of time. He's saying my character doesn't change.
0: But for some reason, these Greek philosophers and Augustine in particular took that one verse in the Old Testament that was quoted at one time in the New Testament, joined it up with the idea of perfect triangles and said, therefore God is outside of time. He stands outside
1: of the universe. But hold on a second, Jesus. If if these Sadducees, I'll throw that one away. If God is outside of time, then here's the creation of the world, here's the end of the world, and here's everything that happens in between. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Live and die.
0: And if God lives outside of time and says, I am the God who's outside of time, then from God's perspective, yes, Abraham's absolutely alive and Isaac's absolutely alive and Jacob's absolutely alive. Even though to you and me, they're long dead because we're living down here somewhere. Does that make sense? And so Augustine and his friends would say, well, if God's outside of time, then Jesus' argument makes no sense to the Sadducees. So why didn't the Sadducees say, but hang on a minute, God's outside of time? Why didn't they say that? Because it never occurred to them that God was outside of time. That is not a Jewish idea. That is not a biblical idea. That is a mad idea that some Roman lawyer who happened to live in Carthage in the 4th century made up, thought it was a good idea. And the reason no one argued about it was because the Roman Empire collapsed the next week and we fell into the Dark Ages, or at least the Western world fell into the Dark Ages. And anyone who had ever read Augustine's books in Latin, well, they weren't discovered for another thousand years, basically. By the time the Reformation rolls around and people are starting to argue with the Catholic Church about a whole bunch of stuff, it never occurs them to argue without this. Meanwhile, in the Eastern Church, the Orthodox guys, they disagreed with Augustine from the beginning
1: and they wrote heaps of books about it. But they wrote them in Greek. And guess what? The Western Christians didn't read that Greek very well. They only read Latin. Can we go back to the slides, please, so I remember where I'm up to. Otherwise, I'll keep waffling all day. Thank you. Why didn't the Sadducees say to Jesus, but God's outside of time? Because it never occurred to the Sadducees that he would be outside of time. So I've, I think I've covered all this. Why didn't they say this to Jesus? Because Jesus would have said to them the same thing he would say
0: to Augustine, and to you, and to me, and to the other deep theologians who think of God living outside of
1: time. Are you not in error? Because you don't know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God. Exodus 3:14, where God introduces himself to Moses and tells
0: Moses his name. God says to Moses, I am who I am. What you're going to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And our theologians will say, see, God is pointing out the fact that he exists. He's independent of creation. He exists and he just is. That's fine, except notice the little asterisks there. In your Bible, you should have a footnote that says these words can also be translated, I will be what I will be. If God exists outside
1: of time, then how can he be something different in the future? I will be what I will be. The reality is that throughout our
0: scriptures, as we read them, God acts as if he's in time with us, as if the things that are happening are happening to him. Not as if he stands outside of time. I'm going back over here. Sorry, cameraman. Stands outside of time looking in and knows exactly what's going to happen from the beginning to the end. If this story is true, then God can go back at any point and change a bit, can't he? He can add in an extra character here. Or he can say, actually, I don't like Isaac's name. We're going to call him William. He could do that. He's outside of time. He can go back and fix anything. So what's to stop you and me down here in 2000? I can't write upside down. What's to stop you and... I just can't do it upside down. I'm not a school teacher. What's to stop us here in 2021 praying that God stops World War II? Shouldn't we really pray really hard that God goes back and fixes the Holocaust? You think God's outside of time? He could fix that. He
1: could kill Adolf Hitler, bang on the head right there. World War II doesn't happen. Why doesn't he if he's outside of time? Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it?
0: The paradox, because the paradox is that God isn't outside of time. He's in time with us. Things that happen have happened. God doesn't go back in time and fix things. There's a reason why every story with time travel in it
1: doesn't work. Because it doesn't work. Things that have happened have happened. God, the way he's created the universe, has created it to be
0: that way. There are lots of places in the scripture where we read of God being in time. In Revelation chapter 4, we have this picture of God in his heaven, surrounded by the angels, and the angels are singing, Holy, holy,
1: holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. God's in time. He was, he is, and he is
0: to come. If God existed outside of time, they would just sing, Holy, holy, holy is
1: the Lord God Almighty who is. They don't do that. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the
0: first and the last, the beginning and the end. And that's true. Jesus absolutely was there at the beginning and absolutely will be there at the end. But he doesn't say, I am in a single solitary moment that exists and there is no past. He doesn't say that. He says there is a past. There's a beginning and there's an end. And Jesus is it. Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus Christ is the
1: same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus says, in arguing with the Sadducees, points to
0: God and says, when God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, Jesus says that God is saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are
1: alive. He is not saying God exists outside of time. And if someone here is a fan of Augustine and can point out to me where I'm wrong, please do so. I would love, actually I'm looking forward to arguing with Augustine about this in the flesh one day in heaven. I presume he's there. He is not the God of the, of the dead but of the living. You are badly mistaken.
0: Are there any questions this morning? Probably that last bit you can forget all about. If, if that was too confusing for you and, I've, and you, don't, you don't want to wrestle with that, that's fine, but
1: that's the stuff I love to wrestle with. Are there any questions about anything I've said this morning? Hopefully you will think about these things and come back to me. I would love there to be a couple of questions about this. Please engage with me about this stuff. Does it matter that God lives in time with us? I think it does. But we'll talk about that some more in the weeks to come. Bottom line for us here is that Jesus is the one who guarantees our resurrection.
0: We can read the Old Testament in different ways, and there, yes, is this clue in Exodus chapter 3, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And throughout the Old Testament, there are different hints of life after death and what that means and what that looks like, but Jesus is explicit about the reality of life after death. There's the story of Lazarus. Jesus' friend is dead, dead for a couple of days, and Jesus comes to the tomb where the people are gathered and and, and mourning and doing the whole thing. And Martha, Mary and Martha, who we know so much about from Sunday school days, Martha comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would
1: not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus says, your brother will rise again.
0: And Martha says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She is looking forward to this day when all will be raised up to stand before God in judgment. I know he will rise again on that day. She believes in the rest of the Old Testament. and Then Jesus says something extraordinary. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die.
1: And then he puts the question to her, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And Martha, to her credit, says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who
0: is to come into the world. Whatever else the rest of this life looks like, whatever this age to come looks like, whatever this eternity looks like, whether the floors are made of jelly and we can bump on them and whether we can eat the seafood we want and whether or whatever, whatever else, Jesus will be there in the midst of the whole thing because he is the resurrection and the life. And if he isn't there, I don't want to be there either. But because he's there, I know it's going to be a good place. And I know I want to be there. I want to see my Savior's face because heaven is a wonderful place. All the paradoxes and all the challenges of the world throws us and asks these questions about it. For us, the argument comes down to simply this. Jesus promises there is life to come, that he is the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him,
1: they ever so wise, like Augustine, or ever so simple, like you and me. Whoever believes will live, even though they die. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. The question for each and every one of us: Do you believe this? I point you to our faith fingers. The things that we talk about,
0: our way of growing our faith, these are big questions and big issues, and so I encourage you to take them, one, to the Lord in prayer. Discuss these things with the Lord. Read the references there in the notes. Think about these things. You might even want to read the Confessions of Augustine. They're free online. He's still talking to us. He has some good points. You might want to make that part of your private devotions this week. I encourage you to find that trusted person who you can have those deep conversations with. Who is that person who you can go and share these deep issues with? Are you part of a small group, a group that gets together to ask these tough questions and to debate and to read and to study the scriptures, to hold each other accountable? Our groups are resuming this week as the school returns. So we've got our Tuesday group, we've got our Wednesday group, we've got a Thursday group, we've got a Saturday group for our Tongan
1: ladies. There are groups for all people, all ages. Please, if you'd like to be a part of those groups, come and speak to me this morning. I encourage you to take this out on mission. Ask people the question, do you believe what Jesus said about life after death? If not, why not? And, of course, to come to church. This is how we grow in our faith, by hearing challenging ideas,
0: things presented in a different way of worshipping together, of celebrating who Jesus is and what
1: he has done. I encourage you this week to think again about those faith fingers. Where can you grow your faith? How can you reach out to God this week? I think we'll skip over my song, my simple song this morning. It's a land that is fairer than day, and by faith we can see
0: it afar, for the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. And those friends and family and loved ones who've gone before, who are safe in the arms of Jesus,
1: we will meet on that shore one day. In the sweet by and by, when we see Jesus we will see all those that he has in his care as well. It's going to be weird. It's going to be different. I don't know what it means to not marry or be given in marriage and be like an angel in heaven.
0: I've got a whole bunch of questions about that that I will not share with you on a Sunday morning. But
1: I know that it's going to be good because Jesus is there and I know it's going to be better than this. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we thank you that you, through your Son Jesus, guarantee our resurrection.
0: You promise us that life is more than what we see around us, that we are not just slightly cleverer monkeys, but we are made in the image of God, created with a purpose, that you have placed eternity in our hearts. Father God, this morning I pray if there's anyone here who isn't sure of these things, who doesn't know where they're going when they die, Come, Lord Jesus, and speak to that person now by your
1: Holy Spirit. Grab a hold of them. Do not let them go. Father God, we look forward to the day when we open our eyes and see Jesus. We look forward to that year of Jubilee when all debts are cancelled and all the slaves are set free and everything is set right. Father God, Help us to be found faithful while we wait. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite our worship group to come. We'll sing our
0: final song this morning. The beautiful hymn of the church, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. One of the verses talks about treading over Jordan, the river Jordan, which symbolizes death, and walking into Canaan, the life of promise. As we sing this song this morning, let's follow with Jesus. Let him guide us. that new life, that new world. God bless you.